So we are continuing with our study through the, uh, the book of Ephesians with the theme of uh, joy for the journey. This is the joy epistle. Uh, and again, one of the, the things that's so remarkable about that is the Apostle Paul is actually writing while in prison. He's, uh, he is uh, in, in uh, home prison. He is shackled to a Roman guard as he's writing this. And, and the, the joy that he has is just contagious, which is a good thing, because very difficult for us to have joy sometimes, especially when our circumstances become difficult. But there's something of a transition in our text today. And as I was studying Philippians 1, 27 through 30 for our sermon today, and I was looking about the expectation that the Apostle Paul has for the Philippians that they would walk worthy in a worthy uh, manner according to the gospel that they've been saved through. Uh, it occurred to me what an example of that uh, in, in, in history was uh, Henry V. Henry V, King of England. You, you probably thought the same thing. Uh, but, uh, and I was reading that, and then I came across as I'm going through the commentaries and preparation. So there was a couple of other commentaries that mentioned this is just like Henry V. So that, I'll take that as an endorsement. But to know something about Henry V, Shakespeare, of course, immortalized him through one of his magnificent plays. Henry V was basically a party boy. He was a spoiled, rotten, rich kid, and he would just hang out on the cheap side uh, of London drinking with John Falstaff. He was vain, he, uh, he was arrogant, uh, and he was just a drunkard, but something happened. His daddy died, and he would become the king. On his deathbed, he told his daddy about the crown. You won it, wore it, kept it, gave it me. He recognized that he had not been leading a life that was worthy of the crown that he was to wear. But he repented and he changed. And when he was made the king of England, he said this, The tide of blood in me hath profoundly flowed in vanity till now. Now doth it turn and ebb back to the sea where it shall mingle with the state of floods and flow henceforth in formal majesty. And indeed, Henry V went on to be one of the greatest, most noble kings in all of English history. That is God's expectation for you. If you're born again, you are a child of the king of the universe. And because of that, it is not for us to be getting drunk with John Falstaff on the cheap side of London. We are called by God to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and unpack this passage of Scripture to motivate us to do so this morning. God, we do turn to you in faith. We ask, God, that you would convict us of our sins, but also build us up in grace. And we pray, God, that we would understand that our obedience is not to earn your favor, that if we are Christians, we have your favor. Our obedience is an expression of gratitude and love. We want to bear the name Christian well. Help us, Lord, challenge us to do that because it's so difficult at times. And help us to leave this service of worship with a powerful conviction and an understanding of the grace we're under, but also of the wonderful responsibilities that we've been given as prince, princes and princesses of the king of the universe. Help us to live a life worthy of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. Again, please turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. There's these, uh, these three verses this morning, and I'll read it in, in its entirety, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at the various aspects that we have here. Uh, <clears throat> 
Paul says God writes, I'm sorry, God says Paul writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. And, and uh, for it is, has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You might find your home group helps insert of assistance to you as you, we kind of uh, unpack this verse here. And you're going to see in that, first of all, that we have a standard. Your standard is mentioned here in verse 27a. You are to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul, again, to give you a little background on the Philippian church, he had a special love. If, if, you, if Paul had a favorite church, which you're not supposed to have, but if he had a favorite, by the way, you're my favorite church. Uh, you're not supposed to do that, show favoritism towards children. But if Paul was pressed, if he really had, if he had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Jesus, he would say, man, I love those Philippians. I just love that Philippian church because their faith was so grounded out of their poverty. They often gave to the point of sacrifice. They often sent Paul gifts as a reminder of how much they love him. They had a special concern for him, even to the point of sending their pastor, Epaphroditus, to Rome to check on Paul to make sure he was okay. He adored the Philippian church. Plus, they gave him less trouble than the other, other churches, right? They would just walk in obedience. Nevertheless, though, they had issues. We're going to see as we go into chapter 3 and 4, there was problems with false teachers. There was also some problems with some disunity, perhaps some, some faction building that was going on here. Uh, so Paul, Paul basically starts off here. He's been talking about the wonderful things of Christ. He's been given something of an autobiography, uh, filling in the Philippians about what was going on with his life here. And now he's making something of a transition here. He's going here from some of those uh, indicatives of who you are in Christ to some of the imperatives. What are you to be? How are you to live based on who you are in Christ. He tells them later on in chapter 2, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. To pursue the things, to be consumed with the things of this world as a Christian, you're not going to lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation, but you can live a life of vanity, of waste, and end up at the end of your life with very little, if anything, to show for it. You don't want to be one of those people that gets into heaven by the skin of your teeth. Your teeth don't have skin. That's what that expression means, okay? If you're saved, you'll be saved. But our, our duty is, and our delight is to vote our life to please the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says here, only let your manner of life here. This idea, it, it, it's kind of lost in the English translations, but if you were to look at the Greek, it would say basically, only let your manner of life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that's interesting because that's sort of a little bit lost on us, but to be a citizen of Rome was everything to a Roman, everything to the Philippians. 
You don't get Roman citizenship by just being born in the Roman Empire. It was really reserved for special families, the highest families, or you had to earn it in some kind of way, or you could purchase it with a bunch of money. You could become a citizen there. So to be a citizen was the ultimate thing there. And to be a citizen of your particular, particular Polish, your particular city, was everything. You would walk around, I am of Corinth, I am of Ephesus, I am of Rome. But the Philippians had kind of double amount of pride because their city, though it was Macedonian, Greek, it was a Roman city, a Roman colony settled by veterans who fought for Augustus, uh, who fought for Octavian. And they were granted citizenship, so they, they, used, they used Latin. They even had temples to the Caesars where they would burn incense to revere the Caesars. So Paul is using this. He is talking about their citizenship to make them understand that, yes, you may be a citizen of Philippi, but you are a citizen of a far greater place than that. One day, Philippi will burn. One day, it will be a ruin where American tourists walk through with headsets on. He didn't say that. I made that part up. But heaven will never burn. Heaven exists now. Heaven is waiting for us. So he really wants to emphasize this idea of your polis is actually in heaven. But what does that mean? Well, as James Montgomery Boyce says, the polis demanded his complete loyalty and he gave it will willingly. To him, it was the best thing of life. To be a citizen of, of, Ephes, of uh, Philippi would have been the best the greatest privilege they have. But Paul says there's an even higher privilege here. Uh, Paul reminds them that they, their citizenship is in heaven and it, because they've embraced the gospel of Christ. Now, here's, uh, we have found that very often when we go and do, have teaching opportunities, I found this as I teach at Anderson University. If I ask people, what is the gospel? M most people, maybe not the majority, but at close to it, well, they don't really know. They'll say the Bible. They'll say the Bible. Now, to prevent anything from being awkward here, I'm not going to ask you, what is the gospel? I don't want you to answer that question yourself. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? A lot of people think it's just rules and regulations for life. That's not what it is. 1 Corinthians 15 gives you a nice little quick summary of what is the gospel. Gospel means good news. It's a message. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. The gospel is you cannot earn your way to heaven through your good works. But Christ can. You cannot save yourself, but God provided a savior. You believe in that savior and God's good work, Christ's good works are imputed to you and your sins are imputed to him you, therefore, have eternal salvation because the perfect offering was accepted by God because the offering was God himself. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And we tend to miss that. We tend to miss that. So he's emphasizing we are uh, here to, to live out. We are to walk out that gospel. This is a common thing with, with Paul. And you will often hear this idea, this expression of walk as in, in, is, uh, his emphasis on the way you to live your life. Ephesians chapter 4, also written from jail. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. First, uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, also written in jail, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Y'all, this makes all the difference in the world. If you grow up with, a, with parents that you love and that love you, you just want to please them. You want to please them. 
And that's the motivation behind us. It's a love motivation, not a score one for me. I sure hope I earn God's favor. The Christian already has God's favor. That seems so redundant. We mention that kind of thing all the time, but it it takes a lot of repetition to get that through our thick heads sometimes because we still live this life that we don't measure up to this standard. Folks, we are children of Adam, children of Eve, and we are born sinners, and we're born legalists, so we're always keeping this score. And one of the things we need to recognize is the truth of the gospel. Part of what it means to have faith is to believe that God fulfilled the law. And while you never will, you have a responsibility to walk in that law to the extent that you can in faith because you love God and because you were called to represent him on this planet. The Westminster Confession of Faith gives you the standard you know, of, of what we be. It asks the question, you know, what is the contained in the scriptures, where the scriptures principally teach? The answer is the scriptures principally teach just, just two things. The whole Bible is just two things. What man is to believe concerning God, your doctrine, your theology, and what duty God requires of man. Those two things. Who is God and what does he expect? Who is God? What is he and it's that second one, the reason why people keep denying God. They know in their heart. They know in their heart they're homesick for a place that, they're not, that they haven't ever seen. They know that they were made for a place different from this. That explains the constant disappointment that humans have in this life. They know they're supposed to be somewhere else. And yet, when they start getting close to it, they know also, if I recognize there's a God, that means he's got expectations for me. And I don't want those expectations, so I'm going to ignore the fact that there is a God. But for the Christian, that's everything. There is a God What do you want me to do? What are your expectations for me? The author of Hebrews, I just love Hebrews. Um, I just preached it about three, four years ago, but I sure am tempted to preach it again. Speaking of Abraham and Sarah and all those who had gone before, the author of Hebrews says this. These died in faith without receiving the promises. They hadn't seen Christ. But having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such thing make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. As it is, they desire a better country, which is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Wow. Paul is saying, Philippi? The, the jewel of the Roman Empire? Philippi? Huh. That ain't nothing compared to the city that God's going to reveal to you one day. So if you have to say no to the leaders of Philippi to say yes to God, it's worth it. It's worth it. We see here your standing in verses 27b, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. But but whether he lives another day or is executed in Rome, you know, either way, he's going to he's going to be with them. That they're standing firm in one spirit. Now, here's, here's Paul. Is, is, he's a good preacher. He is relating to the people here. This idea of standing in one spirit is, is, would be similar to the use of the, of the term in describing the Roman army. A soldier who's defending a position at all costs would stand together in one, uh, one, uh, one spirit. It, literally, the point of sacrificing his life if he needs to. He holds fast to his position in order to protect those, himself and those 
around him. This is what that term means. So this is what we are to do as Christians. We are to have our feet firmly planted. We are to stand firm. That's both positive and negative. We are to stand firm against the devil, against the influences of the world that would, that would cause us to compromise our faith, but with each other and for God. We're both offensive and defensive. And if you've studied Roman tactics, you know, it's amazing. If you look at the, 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 the spread of the Roman Empire, they did it through military means. Um, th they often came across people who were physically far superior to them. Uh, Northern European people that would often stand head and shoulders above your average Italian, your average Latin, your average Roman. Uh, and they were, they were extremely brave. They were warriors. I mean, their gods were gods of war. Thor, Odin, they're gods of war. They worshipped they worshiped war to a certain degree. They were born warriors, but they came up against Rome, and all damn little tan Romans whooped them. <laughs> Why? Because they stood firm. They had discipline. They had walls of shields that would go forward in order. They had been trained for years and years and years and years to combat those other tribes, and they conquered the world as a result of that. Y'all, that's what God's calling us to do. We don't go out there and do individual combat. We stand shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield against the devil and for God. There's a militantness that, 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 that ought to give us a sense of patriotism towards heaven, is there not? But we don't do it alone, do we? We do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. We do it with the understanding of Scripture. But we also do it with the full armor of God. Why? Why do we need God's armor? Because we're fighting a spiritual battle. Our battle is not against the, a particular political party. It's not against people who are of the LBGT persuasion. It's not against communism or literalism. That's how it manifests itself. But our battle is against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, we have to put on the full armor of God in order to resist uh, in, the, in the evil day. And we're united under one spirit. With, with Paul, that, that reference to spirit is almost always regard to the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and, and so we, are, we have the same Holy Spirit. You know, this is the whole reason why. I mean, you ever met a Christian who didn't even speak English? And there's, auto, there's this, this sudden realization, this is a brother or sister in Christ. There's a connection there. And I think that's part because they got the same Holy Spirit. Your family, you just didn't know it. <laughs> It may not even look like them, but they're family here. That's what he's talking about. We've got one spirit here that brings us together. This idea of, this, of unity, this emphasis is an emphasis in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Okay, how do we do that? With all humility and gentleness. All humility and gentleness. That was so radical. Y'all, you know, remember what the Romans did for, for entertainment? They, they watched people kill each other in the arena. Remember how they got all their wealth and prosperity? By taking it from somebody else. But the church is called to a different standard. We are to walk with all humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit. There is also, you were called for the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is over all and through all. You know, that, that's what it is. There's, we are required to be unified. Now, we don't compromise Scripture to do that. There are, there are peoples, there are pastors, there are denominations. I'm not going to be on a platform up with them because in many ways they represent uh, 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 unbiblical notions of who God is. 
Now, when it comes to certain moral things, we might be able to do that. We might not be out of it. So we're not going to compromise some kind of things. But what you've got to constantly compromise is your pride. You've got to put down your pride. You've got to consider other people more important than yourself. Uh, this is all part of how we become united. We, we, we show that kind of love for each other. We do this with family, don't we? we, we uh, especially parents and grandparents. There's, you know, it's tough raising children. Uh, if you don't die to yourself, those children will not be raised well. Selfishness will kill a marriage. Selfishness will kill a family. It will kill a church. It will kill a church. Train yourself when you walk through those doors on Sunday not to be thinking, you know, what's, I'm here for me. What's, what's, what's in this for me? Think about how, what you can do to serve others. Paul talks about uh, in Galatians chapter 5, you are called to freedom, brethren. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For as the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbors yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. But it's so simple when he writes it. <laughs> but that is, that is a lifelong struggle, is it not? Because the flesh just cries for attention, but the Spirit is more powerful. The Spirit is more, more powerful. We see here, we uh, are striving, in verse 27c, with one mind striving together in faith. Now here he's using something, a soldier illustration, but also uh, an illustration from, from, from athletics. The word actually contains the word that we, where we use the word athletics. But it's a, it, is a, it is a struggling, a striving together here as in a comp an athletic competition here. But we're going against Satan, we're going against sin, and we're going against sometimes our own corrupted thoughts in many ways. And we're for the faith of the gospel. Now, remember, the faith, the gospel is not a responsibility to be fulfilled. It's good news to be believed. And notice that it's the gospel. There is a set standard for what our doctrine is. That's one reason why we repeat the creeds of the faith here. That kind of reminds us of what our doctrines are actually believed. Uh, you remember Jude in Jude chapter 3 says this, that Jude refers to the faith which was once handed down for all the saints. There is a level of doctrine that all Christians should understand. There got to be this sort of dumbed down movement in evangelicalism for decades here that uh, uh, no creed but Christ uh, don't, don't bother me with doctrine. Doctrine divides. Uh, no, it actually does it. It actually unites. And again, what kind of God thinks that you worship him better by being ignorant of who he is? We have a responsibility to know the doctrines, to embrace those doctrines, to be able to defend those doctrines so that we can, we can tell truth from error. But this idea of striving, we're working together on a common team here. I like what Dennis Johnson says here. He says, people who are serious about following Jesus are now or will soon find themselves to be beleaguered, misunderstood, despised minorities surrounded by a society that is indifferent at best and hostile at worst to the Lord whom we trust and serve. You know, it's, uh, if, you knew, if you knew that you were going to spend January hiking the Appalachian Trail, wouldn't you start preparing for that now? Wouldn't you start working, uh, walking, increasing your miles all the time, adding a backpack, you know, that sort of thing? Um, and and, you know, and it, it, that's the way it is for the Christian life. You, you, you know that you're going to have opposition. We know people are going to want to corrupt your faith. 
influence you, influence your children. So we have to train ourselves constantly, strive side by side, standing firm. Now, again, this, is, this would have appealed to the Philippians. As he's writing this, there are, there are veterans of the Roman Empire that remember, oh, yeah, I remember in that battle with Carthage. We almost died, but we all, we all pushed forward together in that shield wall. We end up winning the day. They knew what he's talking about. And that's why he's emphasizing this. Uh, Tim Keller and, and the Reason for God says this. Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility, deep confidence at the same time, and it undermines both swaggering and sniveling. <laughs> I love the way he puts that. I'm so stinking sinful the Son of God had to die for me, but he loved me so much, he considered it his honor and pleasure to die for me. You see that balance there? You see that, that tension that we need to have? So what's your sign? He goes on to verse 28. In no way armed, alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from, from God here. So basically, this word frightening here, it's actually what the Greeks would have used to describe a, a terrible stampeding of a herd of horses. I don't know if, how many of y'all have ever seen a stampede of a herd of horses. None. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, it, well, I imagine that'd be a very frightening fright scene on the movies. That's a terrifying thing. He says, don't be that way. Don't be like a herd of horses that are stampeding away. They're alarmed or frightened. That's not the way we should be. How should we be? Well, Peter gives us an idea. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you as you're testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice in exaltation. You know, it's, it's so, in, in, even as I'm preaching this, some of you may be thinking, okay, that's, that's fine when life is easy, but when it gets difficult, man, I'm just, I'm just ready to cave. It's the difficulty is the point. The difficulty, fighting and, and, and standing firm in the difficulty is what he's talking about here. I mean, the soldiers trained for battle. We are to be trained for these, these trials here. I kept thinking, uh, uh, now, by the way, no commentary came up with this idea. Um, you ever seen uh, an athletic team from New Zealand? That, there's a point here. You ever seen the haka? You know the haka? The haka, the Maori people, the, 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 the war chant. Uh, the New Zealand rugby team is called the All Blacks, and they get out there on the field, and they plant their feet, and they grimace, and they go, and they do all this war chant and anything. I thought, you know, that's probably a way to start church. <laughs> you know, we are not losers. We are, we've won already. It's just a matter of fulfilling the, what, what God's already done. But really, in some ways, you ought to start off the day with that haka war chant. Go YouTube it. Uh, sometime and just and see what the, the grimacing and the and you th I mean it's intimidating I would not want to go up against the the all blacks uh, 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 New, New Zealand team it's terrifying and it was meant to bring to, to both encourage your side and to strike fear in the heart of the enemy it's the same purpose for God's favorite instrument the bagpipe yeah <laughs> They got the, the bagpipe would encourage the Scots, the British in their fight, and it would terrify everybody else. Y'all, there's no reason to fear. And guess who's in charge of our army? God. I love that verse in Revelation, which Christ comes back on a white horse, a war horse. 
and all the armies are following them. I don't know if that's angelic armies or if we've gotten up to that point in time, we get to come back down. I don't know. If that's the case, I have a bunch of helmets in my study. You're welcome to borrow one. Well, that was longer than it needed to be. Well, all right, which is a sign of destruction for them. This idea of sign is sometimes variously translated omen or proof or whatever. But basically, it's interesting. The hostility that the world has for you is actually a sign. It's a sign that I really am a Christian. By the way, lukewarm, spineless Christians are no threat to the devil or to the world. It's people who actually stand up for the right thing. That's the threat. Okay, so it's a sign of destruction, uh, 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 you know, for them or or, or that we really are Christians. But it's a sign of destruction for them. Isn't that interesting? The, The more they oppose Christianity means that the more they consider Christ an enemy. What happens to the enemies of Christ? Well, Asaph, Asaph was a, a music minister in the temple. And he, was, he just kept seeing all these worldly people just prosper while the people of God seemed to struggle. You ever, ever seen that yourself? In Psalm 40, 73, he's struggling in despair about how the unrighteous seem to thrive and, the, and God's people seem to suffer. And then he had an aha moment. And it was this related to the sign. When I pondered to understand this, I, it was troublesome in my sight until, until. I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you will set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. And they utterly swept away in sudden terrors. Paul speaks of the same thing when he wrote the Thessalonians. About the persecution that was going on to the, uh, in, the, in Macedonia. Which also may have been happening also in Philippi. He says this. This is a plain indication or sign of God's righteous judgment. So that the, you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. For after all it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to who, those who are afflicted. And he goes on to say. And, the, and, uh, and, and when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on all the day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you has been believed. You know, I was in California recently, and I had some conversation with universalists who just think everybody's going to heaven, including this particular, one particular person, including Adolf Hitler. That God's, God's going to forgive everybody, and doesn't matter how you, you're going to, uh, no matter how you uh, worship, you're going, to, you're going to be saved. You know, it's interesting. You tend to not find universalists amongst the people who have suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. Or who have been part of a war zone. Or who have been a victim of heinous crime. There's a sense of justice that cries out. And God is a just God. He is a just God. He will pay back. We may not see it in this life. Sometimes we do. We may not see it in this life. But all things are going to be right. So there is not one evil person that makes one evil action against God's people that will not be in some way punished and in some way you be vindicated 
that, that's a heavy fault, thought. And part of that's the reason why we struggle so much is there are people we love that are not Christians. We understand that. But, but because there are people that we love that are not Christians doesn't mean you, you just ignore the truths of Holy Scripture. And to teach universalism, to teach annihilationism, whatever out there, is basically is to deny the truth of Scripture, but it's also to deny the justice of God. It's to say God is not just. So we are, understand that we, that we will be saved, and yet the world is confused by us. And it's funny, and this is a warning here, the more you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, the more you obey what Paul's telling you to obey, the more attention you're going to get, and it may not all be good. There are people, and this is probably your case when you became a Christian, there are people I thought, wow, I just want to be like them. I'm tired of being a drunken frat boy. I'd like to have somebody, I'd like to go to, I'd like to worship this guy. I'd like to know more about this guy. That's going to happen. There's often people like, I hate the way those people are. They make me feel guilty, and I'm not willing to worship that God, so I need to get, get rid of them or, or, get, or gossip about them or whatever it might be in our culture context. This is so typical. You know, it's so funny. It, the, one of the, the, the truths of Scripture just shout in every verse, don't they? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph, another military term, we're in a triumphant parade, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma of death from death, to another aroma of life from life. Do y'all like uh, Yankee candles? Uh, or, uh, well, now we're trying to do soy Campbell, can- candles. Soy candles with uh, wooden sticks because we don't want to breathe toxic things. You know, we're trying to figure that kind of stuff out. Anyway, but I love a Yankee candle. And I love, I love going to candle shops and everything. I have never in all my years, if there's a Yankee candle shop, I'm going in there. I've never in all of my gone, gone in there and smelled the, the Christmas candles and the spring candles. I've never in my life seen a candle that said decaying cat. It just wouldn't sell. But that's the aroma of death. Isn't it weird? When y'all obey yourself, you come to church, I think, wow, those li- Steve Rout song is life to me. Li- he also has to be on the front row, so it's the first one I saw. That, you know, Steve Rout song is, is life to me. He is an aroma of life. I love being around Steve. Y'all would love him, too. He's just a great guy. Uh, he's an aroma. He smells like a really good Yankee candle. Butter sage. All right. But there's others that Steve Rout song said, death. I smell death and decay in that man. Y'all, that's just the facts of life. Just the facts of life. So we stand firm. We press on. We just got to accept that. This is hard for you middle children who are always trying to please everybody and get attention, right? We just got to accept that. Sometimes people are just going to hate you. Make sure it's because of Jesus, not because of something stupid you did. That's kind of part of the responsibility, too. All right, got to finish up here. We got communion. Your suffering is also. Now, this is very important because if you haven't suffered much now, give it enough time, it's going to happen. 
verse 29 through 30. Notice what Paul says here. For to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You know what's interesting about that text? This might be worth making a note in your Bible. That word granted literally could be translated graced. Grace. It's from the same word of grace. It's been graced to you to not only believe in him. We get that part, right? We're saved by grace, right? But to suffer. It's been graced to you, Christian, child of God, to suffer. In other words, God is bringing grace into your life through the means of suffering. That's hard to accept, right? Except for some of you who've been trained by suffering and are more madly in love with God now than you ever have been. And you know it wouldn't have happened if you have not suffered the way you've suffered. Right? It's been graced for you to suffer. And suffering never... When you hear that word suffering, you don't think short, right? Sometimes it can be years of suffering. How does that work? How does that work? Because that suffering also comes from a God who loves you. You, A spoiled child is a wreck to the family and a wreck to the culture. And what makes him spoiled? Getting his way all the time. Not being trained by denial. And there's times when God is going to deny us what we want in order to grow us up in him so that we love him all the more. A well-disciplined child in an orderly household has a much more love for their child than an entitled spoiled brat has for their parent. I'm for the parent. I'm sorry. We want to have the attitude that the apostles had, Acts chapter 5. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. This is before the Sanhedrin. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on preaching, uh, teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, worthy of suffering. John MacArthur says this, that is the point here is to suffer for Christ's sake is not only a command, but also a privilege. Sinclair Ferguson says, suffering is the friction which polishes our graces without it. We would be all the poor as reflectors of the image of his son. I like that. I like everything Sinclair Ferguson says. Sinclair Ferguson could, could, could read the box of Cheerios to me, and I would be in tears. The guy's just gifted. So this doesn't mean you go out and seek suffering, right? We don't need that kind of martyr around here. And guess what? You live long enough, you're not going to have to seek it. It's going to find you. But know this, and it's important to keep this in mind because our first, what's, good, what's, good, what's the first thought, especially if you're tired, especially if you're sick, especially if it goes on forever, you get huffed at God, to use Oswald Chambers' idea. You start resenting him. If you really love me, you wouldn't let that happen. And that's why we've got to have this seared in our mind. He is gracing you with suffering. And you will persevere through it. And that's one reason why he gives you a church, because you're not alone. You're not alone. He says, experience the same conflict. Remember, this church started in conflict. Got, got, God 
through Paul and or let Paul be thrown in jail and the jailer ended up getting converted. Right. And now you hear to be in me. They're concerned about this. Great example came up in one of some of my readings. Some of us are old enough to remember the, the Iranian Revolution and the, the Americans being taken prisoner and that kind of thing. But in 1984, Madi Diba was imprisoned in the government of Iran for charges of apostasy. In the Muslim mindset, in Muslim doctrine, everybody's born a Muslim. I don't know if you knew that. You're born a Muslim. So if you become something other than a Muslim, you've committed apostasy. You know, in our doctrine, everybody's born a sinner. <laughs> but they're born... So you've committed apostasy, so you can't, you're not allowed to convert. Well, he converted to Christ. And he was held in jail for 10 years as part of his trial, he wrote out his testimony. This were some of the closing statements in this man's testimony before a Muslim uh, court in a, in a dark, dark, demonic government. Mahdi Dibiad says this, Jesus Christ is our Savior and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all the words and miracles recorded in the gospel. I have committed my life into his hands. Life to me is an opportunity to serve him. And death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus Christ. He, 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 he wasn't intimidated by that, was he? And they all got to read that. The United States intervened. He was released from prison and then killed in a Tehran park just days later with three others that were killed at the time. It didn't matter whether you're released. They're going to get you anyway. And he's in heaven right now. And this is what Paul's talking about. You stand firm. You do the right thing. You suffer and you will receive glory because while the world may not recognize it, God sees everything. And I guarantee if you could interview that man right now, he would have no regrets. Absolutely none. So. We may we need to be like those who keep the standard of holy living as citizens of heaven, who keep standing, striving, suffering as a sign of encouragement to believe and a rebuke to those who oppose it. We need to be like Henry V. We need to be people who are worthy of the crown that's been given us by God. In the Battle of Agincourt, led by Henry V, the English had a profound victory that took place on October 25th, um, <clears throat> 1415, on St. Crispin's Day. The English were outnumbered four to one by some estimates. They had supply problems. They were plagued with dysentery, and they were cut off from their escape to Calais. And according to Shakespeare, Henry V rallied his troops with this speech. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that lived this day and see old age will yearly on this vigil feast his neighbors and say tomorrow is St. Crispin's Day. And he will strip his sleeve and show his scars on that day. These wounds I had on Crispin's Day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he will remember with advantages what feats he did on that day. Then shall our names be familiar in his mouth as household words. Harry the King, Bedford, Exeter, Warwick, and Talbot, Salisbury, and Gloucester. Be in their flowing cups, freshly remember the story of this good man will teach his son. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world. 
but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, he, it be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves a curse. They were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. That from the mouth of a former drunkard who hung out on Cheapside with John Falstaff. The day he became a king, he walked worthy of who he was. Folks, that's our challenge. It won the victory for England. It will win the victory on planet Earth. May the Lord bless us to stand firm. Lord, please be with us. We are so grateful for the noble privilege of serving our God. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to always remember the banner of the cross and the blood by which we were purchased and never forget to show the grace to others by which we have been called ourselves. Bless us now, I pray, in a loving, militant manner. In Christ's name, amen.